0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This episode provides an opportunity to listen in as members of down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Basilega, and I am the director of the section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at SHP, and I'll be your host. With me are Kami Kiskiden and Pete Johnson. Dr. Kiskiden is a CVICU cardiac transplant pharmacist at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. She's involved in research and interprofessional education activities for the CVICU and Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. Dr. Johnson is a Professor of Pharmacy Practice and President's Associate Presidential Professor at the OU College of Pharmacy and Adjunct Professor of Pediatrics at OU College of Medicine. Over the last 15 years, Dr. Johnson is a clinical pharmacist at the CVICU at Oklahoma Children's Hospital at OU Health. Thanks so much for joining us today, Pete and Amy. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So let's get started talking about today's topic, mending broken hearts, the role of the farm system caring for adult and children with congenital heart disease. So let's just kind of talk a little bit about the overview of congenital heart disease. Can you tell us the different types that we see in children and adults? What is the
2: incidence and what does the prognosis look like for children with congenital heart disease? Yeah, definitely. So that's a great question. So you might have heard congenital heart disease affects one in 100 children. So it's about 1% or 40,000 births in the United States alone annually of children who are born with a common birth defect. And the causes of this can be related to genetics, maternal causes, or even environmental risk factors. Now about 25% of these infants or babies or children who are born are critical and require surgery often within the first year of life. What's interesting to note is there's actually not a good tracking system in the United States yet, so it could be estimated that if you take the entire spectrum, there could be 3 million who are affected with congenital heart disease. And the overall classification of it, so it's broken into different types, and it's really quite interesting. So there can be structural defects, which is most commonly what we see in children and infants, and then there can also be acquired heart damage, and it can be related to rhythm issues as well. So with regards to structural heart disease, it's often related to, you can think of it as holes within within the walls of the heart itself. Um, and that changes how the blood is flowing within the heart into the rest of the body. The valves within the heart can also be narrowed or leaky, which again affects overall blood flow to the infant or child's body. Blood vessels that supply the heart itself with oxygenated blood can be misformed or missing or in the wrong place. And even the heart chambers themselves can be missing or poorly formed. And all of this really affects, ultimately, the ability of the body to circulate oxygenated blood to all the different organs. And so it can be classified as a or cyanotic heart lesions, which really just get back to whether the blood is oxygenated or not that's going out to the body. While acquired heart damage is not always congenital related, it can require surgical intervention as well. And what's also interesting to note is that some children are born with more than one defect. So really, when you think about congenital heart disease, there's not actually a one size fits all structural defect because each patient is so individualized and interesting. So therefore, the medical and surgical therapies that we use in these patients, whether they're children or adults, often are similar, but then will be a little bit individualized. With regards to the overall prognosis of children who have congenital heart disease, it's estimated that upwards of 85% right now live to be about 18 years of age. This can be related to the severity of the defect or lesion, as we call them. However, some of these patients require multiple operations, and they do have an increased risk of hospital readmissions or emergency department visits. Some of these patients also require specialized care for the rest of their lives, following up with cardiologists and other specialists, and some of them will also face the lifelong health risks as they become adults, such as hypertension, diabetes, and just natural aging. So that's just some of the overview of um, congenital heart disease. So can you tell us a little bit more about the general approach to treatment of patients with congenital heart disease? What's the role of the
1: pharmacist in caring for children and adults with congenital heart disease?
2: Yeah, so some patients who have particularly what we call cyanotic lesions actually require surgery within a few days of being born, Um, and that's just because they wouldn't be able to survive otherwise. With regards to medical management, which is also a place where a pharmacist has a role, these patients can often be maintained on different medical treatments. Now, the goal of these therapies is to really optimize their overall cardiac output, And we talk about mechanisms such as preload, which is the amount of blood coming back to the heart. We talk about medications that help with contractility, managing the patient's heart rate, and decreasing afterload. And the goal of all these different management strategies is to really help optimize overall output from the heart to the rest of the body. So where pharmacists play a really unique role in this setting within the medical treatment setting is with Dose adjusting medications, especially as the infant grows and gets older. Dosage form manipulation. A lot of medications come in pill forms, tablet forms. There's no oral suspension available. You know, how do we make this feasible for a patient who's a month old and isn't taking pills yet? Or sometimes they're not even eating at all. And drug interaction. So a lot of just individualized care is really where the pharmacist medically managed as they grow and get bigger should they need surgery. For patients who require immediate surgical intervention or surgery at any point in their life, this can be done through cardiac catheterization, which is a little bit less invasive than an open-heart surgery, but some do require full-on open-heart surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass in order to fix the lesion or defect or defects within their heart. And as mentioned before, some of these surgeries are staged and they actually require multiple operations, birth, six months of age, three, four, five years of age. Now, what's also interesting to note is that in patients who have very, very severe heart failure or very severe congenital defect that's not able to be surgically repaired, they actually undergo cardiac transplant. And for patients who are less than one year of age, it can be upwards of 63% of patients who have a congenital defect if it's severe enough. And so reasons that we would do this again is if they have a very bad cardiomyopathy that leads to significant heart failure if they have some severe defects such as single ventricle physiology with a failed Fontan or um, transposition complexities with systemic right ventricles. And I would say that the world of transplant itself is very fascinating because it's changing because more patients are surviving into adulthood, adulthood, which is requiring a lot more care and individualization and transitions of care as you move from a patient who's a young child to adolescence and then to an adulthood. And transplant patients themselves require highly specialized care and also care that their caregivers and family are aware of because of their just innate immunocompromised condition that they're in. So it's a very fascinating field of, I guess, transplant and surgical and medical management these days, especially with new therapies coming out. So you might be asking, okay, well, then what's the role of the pharmacist? Well, in the inpatient setting, um, and I'll break it into inpatient, outpatient, and transplant because I think that's really what encompasses all the different care. But within the inpatient setting, it's usually direct patient care-related activities involved with cardiac intensive care services and cardiology. Um, A lot of this is pharmacokinetic consults, anticoagulation consults, drug management, therapeutic drug monitoring, a lot of selecting the most appropriate medication. What's going to be available outpatient? What would be the best dosage form for this patient? A lot of drug information questions. Do we have information for a patient this age to use it in? What type of education needs to be given to the parents? Other things include things like if the patient isn't eating and they're on parental nutrition, we deal a lot with that management. And then immunizations, because if a patient's on bypass or they get a transplant, all of that changes their immunization schedule. So there's just a lot of individualized care that goes on in the inpatient setting and prevention of medication errors. We know that's a huge potential in any healthcare setting, but especially in a pediatric patient or a newborn can have significant detrimental impacts just because one small error can significantly impact a child. Within the outpatient setting, it you might think, oh, now they're gone and you know they're on their own. But no, it's actually very exciting as well because these patients are growing, they're changing, their developmental physiology is changing, which changes how they metabolize and absorb drugs. And so there's, again, a, a very important role for a pharmacist to be involved with therapeutic drug monitoring, education to the parents prior off of medications that they can't get, um, and just helping the providers themselves with selection and drug-drug interactions as the child grows older. And then within the, uh, with pharmacist activities specific to the transplant patient population, that's also unique because these patients have lifelong follow-up, individualized patient medication regimens. Um, There's frequent drug-drug interaction questions that come up as they have other issues, health issues that arise, or they're going to go to the dentist, or they have an infection. A lot of this stuff starts to come, especially as the children begin to age and reach adolescence. There's a lot more questions that come up with how to manage these patients. And then there's medication-related side effects we see with PTLD, autoimmune diseases, and over time, there can even be organ dysfunction. All of this requires very close pharmacy involvement for dosing of medications, making sure that they're on the appropriate medication. Can you take medications off? And then again, in the immunizations of these patients, but not only that, but their caregivers, you know, can their caregivers get live vaccines? So these are questions that pharmacists really can be a part of and help facilitate the role of optimizing patient care in all three of these different settings. So it's, it's quite exciting, actually. So as you had mentioned, the prognosis has
1: improved in children with congenital heart disease, and many of these children will transition into adults. What additional concerns could children with congenital heart disease have compared to other children? What does the outlook of adults look like? Some adults with congenital heart defects will go on to require surgery, and these surgeries will often take place in the CVICUs at children's hospitals across the country. What are some of the challenges that children's hospitals and CVICUs face when caring for these adult patients?
0: And yeah, these are really good questions. As far as the, the first thing the the, uh, the concerns that happen over time, certainly after kids have cardiac surgery, they can go on to develop a number of different complications. Some of them could include hematologic concerns. They could have significant blood clots. They could have motility concerns that develop after surgery and other neurologic complications like seizures. And so as a result, these kids are going to be followed by multiple medical specialists. And certainly I'd say in the inpatient and outpatient setting, the pharmacist could definitely help in terms of optimizing medications as the child grows. As, as Amy mentioned, I know at our institution we have sort of a, a policy in which uh, every week we readdress the patient's weight for our small infants and we work with the dietitians and adjust parental nutrition and other medications while they're here with us. But certainly that can happen in the the outpatient setting as well. So uh, another thing would be as as they go on to adults, as as Amy mentioned, the prognosis really has increased over time. However, that being said, a number of different uh, studies have estimated that adults with CHD have two to seven times higher chance of death compared to their peers according to age. And certainly over time, they can be more frequent users of the healthcare system for routine or episodic care as related to their congenital heart or just their other long-term concerns. And I'd say that one of the things that is challenging with this patient population is the fact that this really is a chronic illness. And I know when I was in pharmacy school or even in my residency, I don't know that I appreciated that necessarily from a pharmacy, I'm sort of concerned that these patients are similar to those that we might see with diabetes or even cystic fibrosis, and that there has to be a transition of care from from pediatric to adult patients. And I know one thing that has kind of helped my perspective on this is actually my older brother was born with a congenital heart uh, defect. Um, As Amy kind of alluded, he had a anatomical or uh, abnormality and called transposition of the great arteries. And he uh, has had several different surgeries over his lifetime and kind of falls in our CHD vernaculum of single heart pathway And so he is doing quite well overall, but some things that I saw from his vantage point is as he was in his late 20s, you know, it became time for him to transition to an adult-based congenital heart specialist. But uh, where we lived at the time, there weren't a whole lot of those and there still are sections of the country where they're not uh, adult-based CHD specialists. So some of these kids are often followed up by peds cardiology and the congenital heart uh, surgery team for an extended period of time. But for my brother, once he was able to hook up with an adult-based congenital heart specialist, we ran into some concerns in that he actually didn't have a PCP. So for some of his medication-related issues, when he ran out of medications, he had to go to his CHD specialist because he didn't have a PCP. And so these are just things that I think that uh, as a pharmacist working with a healthcare team that we can help to address either on the inpatient and outpatient setting. And for like my brother, some other things that he had is actually after his most recent surgery, which was when he was in his adolescence, he started to develop an atrial flutter in his early 20s, which is a known complication. But in the area state where he was when he was going to grad school, they were afraid to touch him because they were a little bit intimidated by his past medical history. They didn't have his surgical records. And so just the breakdown we see in EMRs, lack of access, universal access, that's something that I think... you know, it's not unique to long term chronic diseases like cystic fibrosis and diabetes, but I would argue that CHD is definitely one of those that we see in the pediatric population. And, and I think, again, the role of the pharmacist would be medication counseling, encouraging um, families as they have kids that grow into adolescence to work with the healthcare team to make a plan about how they're going to transition out of the clinic. Also, knowing their medications, something that I'd say is not unique to the CHD population is we see a lot of adolescents that don't really know what they're on, aren't taking an active role in their medications, and I think we can play a role in that. And certainly, I I definitely know, um, and I'm sure Amy can attest to, there are a lot of great resources out there for kids and their caregivers with congenital heart disease. So some examples like um, Men to Hearts, Hearts at Home, these are programs that a number of people have across the country, but there's not a lot of those great resources for young adults, adolescents who are going through that transition period. So again, there's a role that we can play. And if I could put in a plug here, the Pediatric SAG a few years ago helped to partner and created a supplement, special supplement with AJHP in 2019. And there's an issue there that's not specific con- to congenital heart disease, but it talks about transitioning of pediatric to adult patients uh, with chronic health conditions. And there's some a lot of great resources for those that are dealing with this issue for this patient population that could really help to address that. So that was a long and elaborated answer for that, but uh, something I'm quite passionate about. But as you also mentioned, Vicki, there are a number of uh, kids who do go on to in adulthood to require additional surgeries. My brother, thankfully, is not one of them yet although it would not surprise me over his lifetime if that's a consideration. And there often is a dilemma in that it's really the congenital heart disease uh, surgeons or, 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 or the CT surgeons that are taking care of these kids. And they often have privileges or expertise with working with the peds, children's hospitals, CVICUs. So I don't have exact statistics, but there are a number of adults across the country, including my own institution, that have subsequent surgeries at them. And there are all sorts of issues that I've seen firsthand. Some of them are med safety issues, like our syringe pump, does our drug library, is it gonna explode or break down when we try to consider adult-based dosages? Is our EMR, is it gonna be destroyed because maybe we don't see adult patients? My institution is kind of an adult and pediatric facility Although we have kind of a freestanding children's hospital, but our drug library is kind of universal. But some institutions that may be largely freestanding children's hospitals, they may not have that ability. Other things, med selection. So what if the medication is not on formulary? Intresto in is a new medication for heart failure in adults. But certainly that's not something that some pediatric facilities may have on their formulary. Also, it's dosage forms. Potentially, their facility may be more equipped to take care of PEDS patients that are used to taking oral liquids and not some of the tablets or capsules that we might need for adult patients. Some other things, renal hepatic drug adjustments. Our EMR systems, maybe they may or may not be equipped to calculate uh, creatinine clearance as opposed to EGFR, which we may be more accustomed to in our PEDS patients. And then another thing is unfamiliarity with adult-based standards of care. I know, obviously, the Joint Commission has the skip sort of protocols or guidelines, and those may not be things that for our pediatric patients, not that we shouldn't do, it's just those aren't the rules or policies in place. But if we are taking care of adult-based patients, those are all things that we need to, to include. So really, every time we have an adult patient admitted to my facility, I um, sort of take a mentality of all hands on deck in making sure things are done safely.
1: Yeah, I remember practice. We would have our adult patients come to our ICU and I'd be like, "Oh, so and so is back," and it was just nice to be able to go and talk to that patient. But I was like, "Oh no, they ordered all suspensions for you again. <laughs> right. You're you're a grown person. You don't you don't need these. You don't need a 10 cc syringe of vitamin D. You can take the tablet. It's just fine."
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: So transitioning into some clinical pearls, what would you recommend slash what are the differences in medication management in adults versus pediatric patients?
0: Very, very good question. So I think there, in my mind, there are a couple of considerations. First off, you know, the old adage that we as pediatric pharmacists say that kids are not little adults. Well, CHG is not a a pediatric form of heart failure in adults, that the the heart failure that we might see with a kid with CHD is going to be very different than the etiologies of heart failure in adults. And so as a result, when we consider medications that maybe a lot of pharmacists might consider normal as part of a regimen for an adult with heart failure, they're not going to be used for the same indications for children necessarily. So one example would be spironolactone. I know sometimes I collaborate with my adult-based cardiology specialists on our campus, and sometimes they, you know, they're like, "Oh yeah, they're on spironolactone. It's for you know decrease reduction of mortality." Well, in our pediatric patients, the etiologies of CHD-related heart failure are different, and oftentimes we don't have the data that suggests the mortality benefit per se with spironolactone, as an example. Whereas we often use it to help reduce potassium supplementation in kids that are getting other diuretics to decrease their preload. So not necessarily medications, not necessarily used for the same indications in adults. That's one thing that comes to mind. Certainly some other things, clinical pearls, as Amy kind of alluded to, we're, we're dealing with growing pediatric patients. And so the clearance and the metabolism are going to be very different. So the dosages that they need over time are also going to be different. When do you consider not using weight-based dosing? So generally, you know, I, I think in older adolescents, if they're greater than 50 kilos, we should probably use adult-based dosing. But those are some considerations that we might have to deal with with this population. Other things would be ability to eat or tolerate medications. I think as a general rule of thumb, a lot of sources will say kids that are like eight years of age can take a tablet. I had a 12 year old this week who absolutely refused to take tablets and it created some interesting complications and in trying to come up with a medication regimen. And so so those are just things like, do do they tolerate tablets, a preference for capsules, things like that. Another thing that's kind of a a general uh, consideration would be relative contraindications. So aspirin, uh, a lot of people might remember from pharmacy school, there's a relative contraindication for Rye syndrome in children. I know I have pharmacy students uh, that sometimes say, oh my gosh, why is this kid on aspirin? We should alert the provider and run down the hallway. Well, Aspirin is one of the most common antiplatelet or anticoagulation medications that we use in kids that have palliative shunts or even that might have VADs, and so long term, you know, they're going to be on aspirin. My my brother has been on aspirin since he was twelve, and now he's in his forties, and so I think kind of el- eliminating some of those myths with. Our pharmacy colleagues, I think is one thing that's helpful in the general care of these patients. But I think in general, transitioning issues, again, thinking about when to switch to adult based uh, dosage forms, when do you start trying to establish ownership for the child of taking care of their medications, of their knowledge, et cetera. These are all issues that are unique uh, to this population, And just to uh, helping these, uh, these kids succeed.
1: So what additional therapies will children with CHD need in the post-operative period if they have concomitant organ dysfunction? And going along that line, what other therapies will some patients require should they have continued heart dysfunction following surgery? What is the role of the pharmacist in the care of children and adults who require these therapies?
2: Well, that's a great question. So with regards to other therapies that a child who has congenital heart defects or disease may have in the post-op period, I think of peritoneal dialysis, hemodialysis, continual renal replacement therapy, or CRT, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenization, Those would be in the immediate, potentially post-op setting, which again, elevate, as I'm sure Pete has already spoken to and will speak to further, um, when he talks about the role of the pharmacist. These are just innate ways for pharmacists to be involved in helping care for these patients. But sometimes with the renal therapies, we have to help maintain certain fluid balances in the post-op setting as they come out of that. And then if they have developed renal impairment, they may require lifelong hemodialysis or a certain period of hemodialysis. Situations that you'll see, I've seen this in, is at times in the cardiac transplant patient population when they use Calcium urine inhibitor therapies in the long term, they can lead to renal dysfunction and impairment. And some of these patients actually end up requiring kidney transplants. So until then, they will often be on weekly, how many times a week, hemodialysis sessions, which again, enters the ability for pharmacists to be very involved in the therapies, the medication selections and dosings. And then patients who are really critically ill, who have significant renal dysfunction, CRRT is used. Uh, there's instances where we are hooking CRRT up to the ECMO machine to try to help get extra fluid off the patient, or depending what the etiology is of their uh, kidney or organ dysfunction, um, we would att- potentially put them on CRRT. I've mentioned ECMO briefly already, but in patients who aren't able to separate from bypass in the cardiac OR, they'll actually put them on ECMO to bring them out until that they're stable enough to essentially have that uh, heart and lung function on their own. And that's usually a more temporary instance, usually 48 hours or so at most. The other instances where we would potentially be using ECMO is in patients who have significant heart dysfunction, and that can be used as a bridge to recovery or bridge potentially to transplant or further decisions that would be made. Um, I will say, though, with ECMO, where we've started to see more use in pediatrics is with the ventricular assist devices or the VADs. And there's some good data that says, you know, outcomes actually can be better with the VAD usage, depending on the indication. And again, those will be used as a bridge to recovery or transplant patients usually who have significant heart failure and require that extra ventricular support. The other instance, I mean, overall, there's not a lot of data on VADs and there's a whole myriad of different VADs out there. Um, Not all of them are approved in children, but we're starting to see more approval in the pediatric patient population and utilization. So these are just some different types of therapies that you may see. I think there's, again, we're probably have, in the coming in the coming years, we'll be talking more about durable VAD use in the pediatric patient population, potentially total artificial hearts. I know that's been done in in a few adolescents um, to date, but, you know, what therapies do you use? How do you select those therapies? And then how does all of the dosing change? How does the prophylaxis change in these patients when you're talking about antiplatelet therapies and antimicrobial prophylaxis. So these are, as Pete will be speaking to, um, some really important areas that pharmacists can be involved in from both the stewardship side and just also patient safety and optimization of the therapies that are chosen.
0: That's a great segue, Amy. I think definitely the role of the pharmacists in the this post-operative setting with these therapies is essential. Certainly, with really any critically ill patients, there are limited data when it comes to some drug adjustments with things like antibiotics in patients that are on ECMO, much less sometimes ECMO and CRT. They're, those are not uh, just cookie cutter, even though in, in my mind, when I have residents, they, they tend to think, oh, my patient is on ECMO and CRT. Well, they're all relative things in terms of the flow rates for ECMO in terms of the CRT setting. So I think we can play a definite role in kind of evaluating the literature and coming up with the best uh, dosage regimen. Other things, certainly in this population, which again may not be completely unique to a general uh, pediatric ICU or critical care patient, but is nutrition. The way that I think of it is nutrition is absolutely essential in that a lot of um, studies have verified that after cardiac surgery, they have a significant protein loss or a negative nitrogen balance. And so, nutrition is just as important as other standard therapies that we have in ICU patients. And I think if a child is on parental nutrition, of working with a dietitian and optimizing it, you know, despite being on ECMO or despite being on CRT, I think other sort of considerations would be that for some of these patient populations is, is kind of, Amy has alluded to, and, and I have a little bit as well, there aren't always guidelines or standards of care. That this field has been emerging for a while and certainly compared to when my brother underwent his, uh, his surgery uh, the last time when he was uh, about 12, a lot has changed, but there still is a lack of consensus or, or guidelines out there. And so I think sort of working with the literature Working with a healthcare team to establish protocols to evaluate those protocols from a scholarship sort of perspective, I think is essential to, to help improving things. So, Amy mentioned uh, VADs have certainly become more of a standard of care, but certainly the anticoagulation aspects that go into that is an evolving field, just as we as uh, pediatric field, um, pharmacy and medicine, are continuing to evaluate the successfulness of that and to, to evaluate long-term outcomes.
1: and Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. That's all the time we have. If you haven't before, I encourage all of you to check out ASHP's pediatric resources. Here you can find member-exclusive offerings in the Pediatric Resource Center, including disease-specific articles and guidelines webinars, and links for education and training. Thanks again for tuning in for this special episode and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare.